yes, these drugs have been used recreationally or as party drugs for many years, but they do. That doesn't stop them having other uses, you know. It doesn't stop them having a therapeutic value. Hello and very warm welcome to Euroactive's Health Podcast, where we dive into EU health policy and bring you the latest health news every week from Europe. I'm Giedra Pesetskita, a health reporter at Euroactive, and I will be your host for this episode. In the intro, you heard Ian Roulier's voice. Ian is a mental health advocate, a participant in two clinical trials on psilocybin's effect on depression, and a co-founder of Psypan, Psychedelic Participant Advocacy Network. Throughout his work, he is trying to normalize the conversation around psychedelic-assisted therapy and destigmatize these treatments as psychedelics for some are seen only and just as a party drug without taking into consideration the possible therapeutic value. We talked with Ian about what effects psilocybin-assisted therapy had on his depression and anxiety, when these therapies might become available in Europe, and finally, what legislators should not miss to ensure it is beneficial for people. Ian, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. We met actually a few weeks ago in the EU Parliament, where parliamentarians were launching a group aiming to steer negotiations on the therapeutic use of psychedelics. And I was really interested in your story. And actually, I would like to ask you to share it with our listeners too. How did you come across the therapy uh, that includes psychedelics? And why did you need it in the first place? I'd always struggled with my mental health, struggled with depression and anxiety. And um, in about 2014, I was working ridiculous hours trying to effectively do three different careers, which was, uh, they were journalism, um, music journalism. I was also doing uh, business magazine editing and I was also trying to, yeah, carve a, a career for myself in audio production as well. And I was working really long hours um, and it was just too much there were no no evenings no weekends I was just working 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 so if anyone is doing that at the moment and listening to this I would really really advise that they they stop but it's really hard when you're in that place and you feel that you're ultra productive to think that it might be damaging so I understand that it, you only you only realize when you get there sometimes but um, so that point came for me um, I, I'd been to my GP, been to my doctor, tried various um, antidepressants over the years. I'd tried various different talking therapies. Um, the antidepressants, I think antidepressants can be a lifesaver for people because they stop you from feeling as much, uh, but they stop you feeling every emotion as much, or that's how it affected me. And they didn't really deal with the root cause of my, my depression. Um, so I went back to the doctor in 2014, uh, desperately saying, you know, I've, I was forced to stop work. My wife begged me to stop working because she saw what was happening. Um, went to the doctor. I'd been feeling I'd got to a point where I never I never attempted to take my own life. But I uh, there was a logic in my head that I wanted everyone around me, the people closest to me to stop suffering. So it felt like a logical thing. If I wasn't here, they wouldn't be suffering anymore. I see how that's not logical anymore, but at the time it was. I went to my doctor and my doctor said, I don't know what else you expect me to be able to do for you, which was the worst possible thing I could have heard. 
yeah, going to a doctor and hearing those words sounds really harsh. What did you do then? Uh, did you continue looking for help elsewhere? After many months of searching desperately, came across um, a lecture by Robin Carhart-Harris from Imperial College. Um, and he ended this lecture saying they were looking at doing a clinical trial, looking at the effect of psilocybin on depression. So when I heard that, I got in touch with Imperial College and I think it took about another six months and they were six difficult months, but it took about another six months before I was screened. And luckily I got through the screening and was able to take part in the in the in the trial. One of 19 people um, that took part in that pilot study. So I was extremely lucky um, to be able to do that. Um, so it's to date the most effective uh, treatment for my depression that I've received. Um, it's not a miracle cure. It's not one dose and you're fixed. Um, there's a lot of hype at the moment and it's dangerous, I think, to for people to think that that's the case. Um, it takes a lot of hard work during the session itself. You need people with you that are fully trained to help you through the difficult periods. And then you need help afterwards as well to uh, to do what they call integration. So to take the lessons you learn during the session and to learn from those and to make the small changes to your life afterwards that will hopefully help you to live a mentally healthier life. Um, but proof of the fact it's not a miracle cure for human suffering. Um, it, I had what they call an afterglow for three to six months afterwards where my depression, my anxiety were both gone, at least for the first couple of months. Um, I felt lighter, sort of physically, emotionally. The world appeared lighter. If I was out in nature, everything seemed to be kind of that much more alive and I felt more alive myself. Um, but that faded and um, yeah, I, I desperately needed the treatment again. I knew something that that could help me now uh but because of the way because it's a clinical trial and because it's a clinical trial with a schedule one substance i had no way of legally accessing it again so i had to wait another four years uh four difficult years before i could access another clinical trial and that was in 2019 um the compass pathways king's college trial um yeah, looking at uh, psilocybin for treatment resistant depression. Um, but yeah, to cut a very long story short, um, my depression and anxiety came back immediately as the psilocybin was wearing off on that occasion. So again, it's not, people aren't guaranteed to get this afterglow. Um, but that said, having the team around me, having a session with the team the day after, they really helped me to reframe what had happened. I was so devastated, so disappointed that my depression was was back immediately. Um, but they helped me to understand that, you know, maybe I didn't get what I wanted, but I got what I needed. And I, I fully believe that because it's almost like an afterglow is a free gift. It means that you don't really have to put in the hard work afterwards. Um, you just feel better. Um, and with integration work, you might be able to prolong the effect of the afterglow. But having no afterglow at all, it was like, right, well, I, I need to start this hard work now. And um, that's what I did and what I've done. And 
it set me off on a different therapeutic path that I continue to follow today and has been beneficial for me, even though I do get quite low still uh, regularly. Um, it's really helped me. And certain things I learned during the trials have really helped to cushion the lowest points. Wow, it is really interesting to hear how the effect was so different the next time. Uh, I'm wondering, just coming back to the trials that you participated in, could you share what was the process like during those sessions? Um, just imagining taking psilocybin, as you said, you had a whole team there. So it was not just, you know, uh, being all by yourself. Uh, uh, it's not like just taking a painkiller that you could take alone at home or wherever you are, basically. Um, but the whole setting this time seems completely different uh, as there is this element of uh, therapy being involved. It's not like you can sit at home, like you say, and take it and not have any support around you and it will work like an antidepressant meant to work or work, like you say, like a painkiller. You really need, uh, before, during and after, you need therapeutic support. Um, you need preparation beforehand. Um, the trial process... It, itself is it's quite intense because it's clinical research there's a lot of admin you have to do so many surveys you have to fill in uh before and after screening um the process itself though is it's really key that you develop trust with the people some people call them guides some people call them sitters that you have in the room with you at the time it's really vitally important that you build a really deep bond of trust with them beforehand um, and that involves some quite intense sessions. Really, it's not therapy sessions. They're more conversations beforehand where you kind of, I felt like I needed to lay my life out as much as I could for them so that they could understand who I am, what might come up, you know, uh, really personal stuff that I shared with them. But it was really important for them to understand me and to help me develop that bond of trust with them as well um so beforehand um yeah if you if you don't have that trust in the people in the room with you during the experience itself you won't be able to let go properly and letting go and trusting that you can be that vulnerable really it, it really makes you vulnerable it makes you in a hypersensitive state where all of your senses are heightened um the the onus during the session is to go inwards more than sitting there and having a therapy session during the dose it's more that you go inward and you explore kind of your inner world for want of a better term um and that's really really fruitful for many people you know realizations come up they're able i'd say that psilocybin helps you to zoom out uh Depression is a very, very rigid and brittle and restrictive state to be in. And psilocybin helps you to zoom out. It helps you to see things in a different way, maybe see yourself, see your situation, see your life, see your depression in a different way. Um, but the people in the room with you are always there by your side. Um, so in both trials, there were there were two people. So you have like a main guide or sitter and a deputy one who's there in case the other one needs to use the toilet or whatever or, or eat or whatever. Um, so there's always somebody with you in the room. And when you get to a difficult um, stage, which I did, like the beginning of all of my sessions were really, really hard, really difficult, really difficult 
dark and during the first trial i literally faced my demons um and i wouldn't have been able to do that without the help of the team around me um i i you have eye shades on and you have headphones with a an amazing playlist that is also like having another therapist in the room um really helps to bring up emotions and whatever but during those difficult phases um i'd take the eye shadows off eye shadow off take the headphones out and yeah literally reach out either verbally or physically they had like a handhold where you hold each other's wrists so it's like i think they said like a non-romantic handhold um so you have physical kind of support there but also psychological support and without that team around me to be honest with you i think i might have been stuck in those places for the whole uh five six hours so they're really vital um the way the drugs administered that you have uh, capsules that you take and they give you them in a little cup and you, you take them with some water they take about probably half an hour 45 minutes maybe to to kick in and after those trials especially after the second one where you did not experience that afterglow that you were talking about um did you start seeing your condition your depression differently i used to see it as a cancer that i wanted to cut out of myself and now i see it my depression is an ongoing relationship with myself um and like any relationship it needs work it needs effort it you know but like also like any relationship relationships change and uh over time and that in itself brings some hope because you know if you're having a bad patch rather than before where i was like i'm stuck with this and i can't get rid of it it's now okay well i'm in a bad place But because this is a relationship, if I put some hard work into it, if I do some good, take some time out, do some self-care, then hopefully the relationship will improve. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really, really important um, that people understand that the that psilocybin and I think other psychedelic therapies as well, um, they are catalysts. They're not cures. Um, what they do is they create neuroplasticity the scientists would say i would say maybe i think a useful analogy is that it's um they create a fertile field um but it's really then what happens afterwards that enables you to plant the crops and to reap the harvest you know from that field so the work that goes in afterwards is so so vital um for it working you know and that's where integration comes in having these sessions where you sit with hopefully the person that's taking you through the session the dosing session and draw the key lessons from it and go right okay well how can i learn from this what do i do with this what can i change about my life to uh yeah so that i can yeah live a mentally healthier life really um those sessions are really vital and that that's the thing if what we really need to do and and on a you know with Politically, this needs to happen as well. You know, we really need to make sure that those structures are in place for when these treatments are legally available, when they do become legally available. Because if we don't, um, particularly if, and it depends on individual countries' healthcare systems, but in those countries where, you know, pharmaceutical companies or, you know, clinics are delivering these treatments for profit, it could really easily be the case that they cut so many corners 
that they remove the therapeutic element. And if they do that, these treatments, yes, you might have people that have an afterglow. Luckily, like I had, like I said, that's no guarantee, which has some value in itself, but it will really limit the efficacy of these treatments and the potential of these treatments. And it will help far fewer people than if they have the right support and the right container for people um, afterwards um, to continue you know, doing this work, integrating what they've learned, etc. A quick reminder that if you're enjoying listening to your Active Health podcast, you can subscribe to our newsletter that comes out every Wednesday, the same weekday as our podcast. We will make sure to keep you up to date with the main EU health news. And don't forget to check out other Euroactive podcasts such as AgriFood Brief, Tech Brief and Beyond the Byline. You can listen to us on all your favorite podcast platforms. And now let's get back to the conversation with Ayan on psychedelic assisted therapy. Yeah, it's very interesting because uh, like now we're speaking with you about uh, the potential it has and uh, the impact it had on you thanks to clinical trials. But if there wouldn't have been any clinical trials, um, basically you couldn't have experienced this. And uh, uh, what you were saying that you just felt better, um, maybe this wouldn't be the case. So, um, and as you mentioned, it faded and only 19 participants, for example, were there in 2015 trial. So, I mean, it's really not accessible for public, but at the same time, people hear about it. Um, so um, I just wondered, doesn't it um, kind of create kind of a vacuum or I don't know if, if the vacuum is the right word here, but I mean, if people hear that this could help, but they cannot access it legally, um, doesn't it create the danger that people are searching in other ways how to find the substances, how to find psychedelics um, and try um, make themselves feel better without um uh, all the supervision that uh, you had, for example, during the clinical trials. Mm. Yeah, that that is an, definitely an issue. In 2015, there wasn't really the hype that there is now. Now there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of, I've heard somebody say, you know, one dose and they were fixed, you know, they were cured. And that's a really dangerous narrative. And it's not true. It, it's It's just, yeah, it's not the case for anybody that I've spoken to, you know, that's taken part in, in these trials. But yes, you're right. I mean, it's not like any other drug, you know, uh, or the collection different. I mean, these drugs are wildly different. MDMA, psilocybin, you know, uh, ketamine, etc., that are all lumped together under psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, but I'd say that's the key word. It's psychedelic assisted therapy, you know, so the psychedelic assists the therapy really you know it's not it can be it can be therapeutic in itself it can affect you in a way that you have these breakthroughs you have these realizations you you see things in a different way but there's also the chance that you end up in a position like I was where you're stuck and you can't get out of that and if you had someone there in the room to help you that was a mental health professional that's trained to help you they could help you through that phase. But if you don't have that and you're doing it on your own, then, you know, you leave, you're, you're in a very, very vulnerable state, you know, and, you know, the work we do 
as Saipan is really to try and safeguard participant well-being and that's during the trials because there's still so much that could potentially there's so many details you need to get right even in a clinical setting if you take that out of the clinical setting and you're taking psilocybin therapeutically there or trying to there are there are so many things that potential things that that could go wrong and there will be people that hear this and probably say well I did it on my own or with a friend and I really benefited from it so they they won't agree with what I'm saying but if you're already living with a mental health condition it's a huge risk to take I would say you know um but you're right I mean it's not like any other medication it's not like a you know a, a, a different treatment for any other condition you can't with most clinical trials, you can't then say, okay, well, I'm going to go and find it on the street or find it in a field. You know, you don't have that option. And uh, with this, of course, you know, it's um, after the trial, it's really difficult. And there, there is a campaign. Well, there's a psilocybin access rights campaign, but there's also, there are also academics working in this field to kind of, and legal people uh, working to kind of prove that people like myself um, should have the right to access psilocybin afterwards, you know, in a clinical setting, because you're given this. And it's, I mean, I feel, I feel a bit guilty sometimes having taken part in two trials. Like I've had two bites of the cherry, two, two, two pieces of the pie, you know, and it's like, there are so many people out there that desperately need this treatment. But it's, it's really difficult for people in, in my situation, in, in, you know, clinical trial participant situations that after they've had this treatment that has hopefully helped them, they can't legally access it again. And it brings you hope that, you know, something can help you. But then knowing that you can't legally access that, I don't want to say it's worse, but it, it's a, it really is mentally difficult to deal with because what options do you have? You know, it's like, well, I know that I can get this elsewhere. So do you break the law? And if you struggle with depression and anxiety, for instance, that's going to create a huge amount of anxiety in itself. Um, and even if you do do that and you go to the underground and you find a therapist, etc., some will be good. Some won't be good. How do you know? You know, that's how it's really kind of there are so many random elements of that. And you just would hope that everything could go right. But really, what people like myself need is ongoing access to the treatment that can help them. You know, um, it's so it's it's empowering. It's great that people like myself can help advance um, science and we can help hopefully by doing by taking part in this research, help these treatments become available to others. You know, that's great. But we still have to live our lives afterwards we still struggle you know the depression comes back so what do we do you know it's it's a difficult position to be in you know yeah it's very interesting and actually yeah what do you do like uh, how to ensure this ongoing access to the treatments then and uh, both in uk and as you were visiting eu maybe um you can comment maybe comparing also to the experience of other countries what do you know about that um i mean what could be the possible ways um to ensure the access and uh, i mean also like do you see that 
uh, we are getting closer to this point uh, where the access will be ensured or is the basically mm, the stigma is too too hard now and uh, we have to talk uh, about this maybe in 10 years <laughs> or like is it coming in a few years what do you think well you have it's it's not the uk or the eu but i mean you do have and i think it caught most people by surprise um what's happened in australia for instance where psilocybin is, is now going to be available for people with treatment resistant depression and mdma is going to be available for people with um, ptsd so it'd be really interesting to see what happens there and i really hope they have the structures in place to safeguard people properly it's so important. There is a lot of potential in these in these drugs, but if the container isn't right, if people aren't held properly and everything falls apart, then that means people like myself that could really benefit from these treatments will never be able to access them. So I just I hope the Australians get it right, and I hope the states in America that are doing that have also changed the the laws um, get it right as well. You know, we we're in a really critical situation at the moment. The hope is, I mean, it seems that, you know, the EU and the UK, bearing in mind what's happened in Australia, bearing in mind what's happened in the US in certain states are lagging behind now, really. There's a lot of research going on and that's great. Um, I know, well, I, I spoke to someone at the European Parliament last week who said that there, there are currently no clinical trials in Belgium. Uh, but I think there's one that's that's about to begin. I mean, but other countries have pushed forward. They are, you know, various member states are doing this work. So I think I think rescheduling is going to help a lot more um, places. It will enable them to do this research. So we really need to look at rescheduling. What do you mean about rescheduling? Could you elaborate more on this? For example, in the case of psilocybin that was used during the clinical trials that you took part in? I think it's really important that anyone listening to this understands that rescheduling has nothing to do with legalization and has nothing to do with decriminalization. And I think that's where we need to get the message across to, to MEPs as well, um, that if they talk about it in the right way to voters and and explain what I've just said to you, then it won't be because drugs are such a contentious issue and they're a vote winner. If you clamp down on drugs, it's perceived that, you know, you can win more votes or whatever just to, you know, convey to voters that this has no impact on the availability of psilocybin for the average person. You know, you won't be able to buy it in shops. It just means that the research will be easier to do. And as you recently visited the European Parliament, could you comment on the situation in the European Union or Europe as a whole, uh, the continent and what is needed there? We're in a really strange situation in certain countries at the moment where, say in the Netherlands, where you can go to a head shop and you can buy truffles, psychedelic truffles, and you can take them, you can do them on your own, do them with a friend, do whatever, you know, and it's like you, you can have access that way, but um, you are not allowed to, you're not allowed to take psychedelic truffles if you're somebody that's struggling with depression with a team of clinical professionals around you. You know, that seems to me, you know, there's zero safeguarding. 
for it's sort of anyone going to a head shop to to buy um buy you know psilocybin truffles um but then you know you can't if if you do what choice do you have if you live there you know or if you go there you travel there it's like well oh i've heard that um psilocybin can help depression i can go and buy these truffles but you are not allowed to have legally not allowed to have any professional support there with you to help you you know it seems so i know that they would argue probably the authorities would argue well that's because that's a safeguarding issue but then you're not going to stop people going there that are struggling with their mental health because they've read about all of this research doing that and trying it you know it's a really strange situation that we're in at the moment i really think we just need to we we need to we really need to educate policymakers. We need to ensure they know the difference between rescheduling and decriminalising or legalising is a huge difference. We need to ensure that they understand the the that these drugs do have a therapeutic value, and that the scientific evidence is showing that. Um, we need them to understand it's not a miracle cure as well. It needs to be a nuanced, balanced conversation, you know. But the analogy I make is that if you have an elderly relative that goes to hospital for a major operation and they're given morphine during that operation, they don't then come out of hospital as a heroin addict. You know, it's like people seem to be able to understand, Okay, well, heroin is like a damaging, addictive drug, but morphine can, you know, is a hugely beneficial, you know, painkiller. Um, we need to get into a similar uh, way of thinking around psychedelics. And I mean, psych- psilocybin compared to heroin, for instance, you know, it's 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 shown to be non-toxic. It's shown to be non-addictive. The more you take it, the less the less it works. You know, if you take too much of it over a short period of time, it will stop working. So um, it's very different. But we need that nuance. We need to say okay well yes yes these drugs have been used recreationally or as party drugs for many years but they do that doesn't stop them having other uses you know it doesn't stop them having a therapeutic value um i just wonder so what what are your next hopes as well like just for your own treatment and uh, um do you expect to apply for another trial or you're just waiting for um changes in the uh, legal system or some drugs just coming uh, into the market so i think i've taken part in two clinical trials and um i still need i still need this therapy i still still need to access this my my main hope i i feel you know it's been hugely beneficial to me and um i don't There is a guilt, you know, if I got onto a third trial and I know so many other people that struggle and suffer and have not had access to these treatments, I'd feel quite guilty. But then on a personal level, I desperately need it. So I wouldn't rule out applying for future trials. But my main hope, I do hope that they can make because I I don't I think it's going to take some time for the science to for the phase three trials, because phase two um that's that's happened now and i think phase three psilocybin trials are on their way and that's going to take another couple of years so i hope after that obviously that there will be 
you know, safe access with the right clinical support in place to psilocybin assisted therapy. My hope in the in the meantime is that if the people that are, you know, if the, the legal people and the academics that are really trying to state the case for access to psilocybin for people like me that have been through that trial, the argument is that it's a human right. I think there is a precedent for, I think it's cancer patients, I may be wrong, that have been given a drug during a clinical trial that they then have access to it after the trial as well. Um, and I think that if that argument could be made and people like myself could access um, psilocybin within the right environment with the support around us um, sooner, then that would be hugely beneficial to an increasing number of people. There are so many people in this situation. They finish the clinical trial um, and then the effects fade away and you end up people end up grasping desperately to try and stay connected to that feeling and integration work can, can help uh we're trying to build a community as well so a peer support community that can help people as well to kind of maintain that connection to the you know the the places they've been during and after the the trial but you know it can be it's a bit of a safeguarding issue in itself. You know, people can feel increasingly desperate. So I think there's definitely a need for that. And I hope that the case can be made uh, for access. But yeah, my, my main hope is that rescheduling happens so that more research can be done so that we can get to the point where these treatments are available more quickly. But also, however, that we are not rushing for the sake of profit to the finish line and cutting so many corners that these treatments efficacy is hugely reduced you know and that people aren't safeguarded properly so i'm sorry it's not a straight answer it there are getting the details right is so important and that is why that's why saipan exists that's why we're trying to feed lived experience back in because the detail is so so important for these treatments to work but i have hope. i have a lot of hope you know um, there are so many people doing good work in this area and there are those that know it needs to be done properly you know without cutting corners um so um i'm optimistic i'm optimistic that things will change and that these treatments will be available hopefully within the next couple of years. Thank you so much, Ian. And as you said, um, there there is a lot of stigma uh, existing uh, when talking about this topic. So I understand that uh, there are no easy answers to the questions um, and it's important to get all the details right. Um, so once again, thank you so much for your time and being here in this podcast. Um, I wish you very best and uh, good luck with the work you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. It's been been great speaking to you. That is all from us today. Thank you for listening. We also want to hear from you. So if you have something to say, don't hesitate to drop us a line. Our email address is podcast at youractive.com or contact us on Twitter or LinkedIn. This episode was brought to you thanks to our multimedia team. So special thanks to them and Ezra Bitterman. Until next Wednesday and stay healthy. Mm-hmm.